I can learn enough about a particular area to make you smart and believe it. If you had to call Central Casting and say, send me a slime ball that everybody would like to beat up, that's the case. I've never seen a doctor, by the way, caught uh, altering the record who didn't lose. Right. Hey, Rick Mikata, Greg Henry, Risk Management Monthly, coming to you for uh, March 2012. Rick, we have to tell them where we are at this moment. Don't make them feel bad. Don't uh, make them feel bad. If there's a paradise on earth, it is here in Maui, Hawaii. Uh, we're actually working, though, for oh, a yeah. living. We've got, no, we wait a minute. Call, we don't nice. call this work. We have, a, we have a course going on. Uh, we've got a medical legal panel coming up in two days. And this is a special issue of Risk Management Monthly. We have with us... Michael Kessler, a, a we're not worthy, Ricky. I mean, this is a famous man, and we're just simple country doctors. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah. give me that. Okay. Michael was with us uh, last July, yes. and um, we know Michael now through Joseph Liebman, who we were in contact with, and one thing led to the other, and we said, you know, do you know any plaintiff attorneys? And uh, Michael's partner, Sandy Ro- Rosen- Rosenblum, Bloom, recommended... Um, um, Michael, and uh, so we did this interview, and he he's happens to be here now, and we thought, you know, this is a great opportunity. He has been very generous with his time, and uh, he's told me a number of times now that it's okay if we put him out of business. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. By the way, uh, a shout-out to Yosef. He, uh, he was my host while I was the visiting professor in Israel. A great guy. And, you know, it's the only time, Rick, that I actually sat and, and or gave a talk where three-quarters of the audience are in military uniform and carrying their rifles. Uh, so you don't want to screw up on a, on a talk in Israel, let me just tell you that. Michael, why don't you give us a little of your background? Well, I've been an attorney since uh, 1973, so now 39 years, the last 20 or so of which have been concentrating on representing plaintiffs who are catastrophically injured by primarily through medical malpractice, but other reasons as well. I am uh, board certified by the, in, me- in medical malpractice law by the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys. There's about 150 of us in the United States, about 10 of us in New York. I'm actually speaking to their conference in San Diego in July. I've been invited to give grand rounds on, uh, in, uh, on birth injury cases, and I've lectured in now four different countries and I think 15 different states on various topics of interest to me. Well, we appreciate your being here. We we did come up with a list of some questions, but we'd like to make we'd like to give you the as free reign here as much as possible. Uh, Michael's also going to be participating in our medical legal panel uh, in two days, as, which is part of the course that we're doing. This is the um, I think the, this is the second one of the year. We were in Whistler a couple of weeks ago. Uh, not that I want to plug any courses or anything like that, but why don't you go to CCME? Org and look at all the wonderful opportunities that you have for continuing medical education that are coming up. Oh, we're going to be in New York in June, too. You can't that's, beat that, that's can you? one of Greg's favorite oh, places. Oh, my God. Can't uh, we, beat it. Key West was a, about a week ago. That was cool, yep. I heard. And it's one of my favorite places. But in any case, let is, let's get started here. All right, so we have some questions, but we like to make this as freewheeling as possible to take care of, to uh, take advantage of uh, Michael's being here. Um, should we do the first one? We should do the first one. All right, and, right. and in all fairness, 
we, you know, Mike recognized the fact that you and I spent a lot of time trying to keep Docs out of his clutches. And I think that uh, I think we really want to know how you think, which way you go. Well, first, I hope you succeed because, <laughs> you know, I have other things to do. I'm out here. Uh, I'd, well, I'm injured right now, but I'm out here trying to spend some time surfing. So uh, I'd be very happy if I was unemployed. Okay. okay. Well, you know, the surf's been, not been very good no, anyway. It's been, yeah, it's been yeah, pretty so flat here. Surf's down, so we got to right. do it. Yeah. All right. So uh, I wrote this down. If I'm sued... Is it strategically wise for me to be at the deposition where that expert is going to tell the, everybody how bad I was? Well, it's a little bit more difficult for me to answer that question because as I, um, my practice is, is primarily focused in New York State, although I do go into other states. And in New York State, we don't depose experts at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, we don't even identify experts in New York by name. Um, so I'm a little, uh, it's a little bit hard for me to say. However, what I can tell you about that is the only possible purpose of that, I mean, there are two really possible purposes, I guess. One is if the attorney is really uncomfortable and doesn't know the medicine and he's concerned he's going to get an answer that's uh, um, scientifically not valid or medically not appropriate, then I think it would be helpful to have, you know, your client there. Um, or, you know, the, defend the defendant doctor there to be able to steer you in the right direction to ask the right types of questions. However, given a choice between um, the defendant doctor being present if I was a defense lawyer, uh, which I'm not, um, or having an independent expert there, I would rather have the independent expert there. And the second purpose that I could see for that is to try to intimidate the uh, defense, the plaintiff's expert. Exactly. Which and and you know that's kind of a sore subject um, because one of the reasons that we don't have depositions of the experts in New York and one of the reasons that we don't even identify experts except by credentials um, is because there is a real fear. There was a real fear, and I think it's a legitimate fear that experts will be intimidated from testifying. And matter of fact, there's countless examples of this, and there's subtle pressures that can be put on them as well as direct pressures. I mean, surgeons, for example, you know, like you, try, you go try as a plaintiff to go find a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, they're very few. It's a very small community, and they're very reluctant to become involved. And there are cases around the country where doctors, for example, there was a case in Florida, I believe, maybe in North Carolina, maybe in both, where there was, I believe, was a neuro neurosurgeon, and he yes. testified in a case. And um, the defendant uh, wasn't happy with that. He reported him to his professional boarding society, and they stripped the guy of his privileges. He had to go sue to get them back. Um, that is a very chilling factor on experts taking legitimate cases. One of the reasons, and one of the other questions I know you're going to get to, and because you, you sent them to me in advance, was what makes a good expert. And frankly, the experts that I want to get, the most important, or one of the most important uh, considerations, is having somebody with impeccable credentials. Somebody who's not going to be intimidated, and certainly not going to be intimidated by this doctor who... Uh, we believe made a serious mistake uh, coming in and uh, looking them in the eye. I mean, I don't believe intimidation has any, should play any role in these Well, I think we probably overstated that, but, you know, on the other side of the uh, ledger, we are concerned about doctors who do egregious testimony. Yeah, oh, no, I, you know what? You're absolutely correct. And there are people around that'll say anything. They're just like in my profession, there are lawyers that'll take a bunch of really lousy cases, and I'm offended by it. 
It hurts the system. It's not good. They'll go out and find an expert through, I mean, years ago when I didn't know any better, I found some experts through these expert finding services. I would never do that today. I haven't done that in probably, you know, 18 or 19 years. Um, you know, I might spend, uh, depending on how much time I have, I might spend years trying to find the right expert. I, a couple of years ago, I was involved in a case, and um, I, I, I decided that I needed a um, gastroenterological physiologist, not an MD. And believe me, it was hard to find that. I didn't even really know what I wanted. I know what I needed. I know what I wanted somebody to be able to say. And I spent like literally two years trying to find the right people. Ultimately, I found two, one in San Diego and one in Louisiana, who were the gurus of this particular field. But I agree with you 100%. There are, there are people out there who will say anything. And frankly, it's terrible. It's, it's bad for the system. It's bad for the lawyers. Ultimately, um, the lawyers who take those kind of cases don't do well. And I think everybody's harmed by it. That's an unfortunate situation. So you know, I've, I've uh, done cases in New York. And uh, let me just tell you, I think the, the not deposing witnesses, uh, expert witnesses, is, is not a good thing. I think there's only two states that do that. Uh, every place else, they take deposition. So at least you can look at the case and decide how it's shaping up. It's a crapshoot, Mike. Well, You've got to admit that. Well, you know, I'm kind of in a unique position. So I, I, in general, I think you're correct. However, my caseload is very small. It's a very, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very small number of very large cases, all of which have egregious liability. And frankly, we, before we started recording, we were talking about this. If my expert isn't telling me, wait a second, they couldn't possibly have done this. You're, you're not telling me something. No one could possibly have been that stupid. And sometimes that's actually the defense that, well, that couldn't be because we couldn't possibly have been that stupid. Well, I agree with you. In general, I would like to, to, uh, to be able to find out what somebody else is going to say. And I think it probably contributes to earlier resolution of cases which do have merit. Frankly, the biggest challenge that I have in cases, because we don't um, there isn't this greater expert disclosure, is that the defendant's insurance carrier primarily doesn't realize how much trouble they're in until it's too late. And they don't look at these cases early. Their, their, their own client, the defendant doctor or hospital, as it may be, is you know sell, telling the lawyer and the insurance company, I didn't do anything wrong, and this is defensible, blah, blah, blah. And it's not until they find out that I have, you know, the chairman of the department of such and such or, you know, the leading expert in the world on this thing, and they find out and they say, whoops, now it's too late. If they had settled this case earlier on, it would have been one thing. So I agree with you in general. Um, I would like to be able to have that. Uh, the experts I have, frankly, I don't think would be intimidated. But I do know a case in the, in the field of obstetrics, for example, outside of your, your area of primary, primary expertise, who really got into a big scrapple, scrap with ACOG and wound up resigning from ACOG because he, and this is a, somebody who is a leader in his field, absolutely yep. no question about it, but they intimidated him out of ACOG because ACOG is very, I mean, I have a bone to pick with ACOG, but ACOG, you know, is notorious recently for creating literature to support their, their positions. I mean, created out of whole cloth, frankly. Well, the uh, the situations that I've come up against, uh, let, let's take the, the one that everybody uses, the reference, is Jacobs versus the AANS. Jacobs was a neurosurgeon in New York. Uh, he was uh, He's both a neurosurgeon and an attorney. 
Bad uh, combination. Oh, are you way. kidding? Oh, my God. I would never, by the way, I would never. I ran into somebody at our AAJ meeting uh, last month in Phoenix, and there was uh, somebody there who told me that he was a doctor and a lawyer and wanted to be used as an expert in hospital administration. I said, I, you know, frankly, I wouldn't advertise the fact you're a lawyer. I would never, ever, ever use a, somebody who's a doctor and a lawyer, maybe to advise me but never to testify. It just looks bad. Well, more than that, when they're on the stand, the other side can always say, uh, is it doctor or counselor? Yeah. Which one do you want to be well, called? I don't, need that, I don't need that question. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's, it may be uncharitable, but uh, many of the doctor lawyers that we know, uh, they're considered not very good at either. I would tend to agree with you. on From my experience as lawyers, I know several, and... Uh, um, I would agree with that assessment in general. Yeah, it's a, it's an unfair characteristic, I'm sure, right. but it's, it makes us feel better. Yep. You know, the thing is, I mean, you know, I look, I couldn't focus my microscope in high school. So I, and I, and I want to be on record as saying uh, no one has more respect for physicians than I do, period. End of story. Because you guys have a most challenging task. You were the guys who, you know, could focus your microscopes in high school. You'd learned about all this stuff. But on an isolated area in a particular case, um, I can, with a good expert teaching me and holding my hand, I can learn as much about that particular field as you'll ever know. Absolutely. Okay? We understand So that. the point is, I think being a lawyer and a doctor is of no value whatsoever. Um, and on a particular isolated area, I used to do, a, I, had, I had four cases involving tuberculous meningitis over my career. Okay, that's probably more than... Um, it's more most, than I've seen. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's <laughs> more than most physicians have seen. I got, because I got, did one, I got involved in three other ones. Of course. But you know what? I would stack my knowledge of tuberculous meningitis at the time up against just about anybody's because I had some of the best doctors in the world, literally in the world. I had someone from South Africa, all over the country teaching me about this stuff. I had a library of like 300 uh, articles and publications. One of my experts after the case was over, he asked me for, you know, my, my library about this so he could have a file on it. So I, can, I knew more about tuberculous meningitis than almost anybody, um, you know, who wasn't seeing it on a day-to-day -day basis, if you, like, unless you lived in South Africa or something like that. So all I'm saying is I don't think that, getting back to the original question about having your expert there, um, yeah, I've had occasions where I've had an expert as a plaintiff, not deposing another expert. Well, I guess it is deposing another expert because it would be deposing the defendant, but only occasionally. I've gotten enough information, and uh, that's one of the, my criteria for picking an expert. I know that's one of the other questions you were going to ask me, but um, I can learn enough about a particular area to make you squirm, believe me. Oh, there's, uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, when people put their mind down to it, they're serious money, and it's a narrow a aspect of it. You know, yeah. I think any layman with the coaching and, and motivation can yeah. can do the job. I wouldn't know a gram stain from, you know, from looking at an ink blot and a Rorschach's test, but I know what, what it means if you have a positive gram stain. Exactly. Exactly. No matter what that looks like. Right. Exactly. I, you know. You're and I actually, I did, when I first got involved in that, I actually did ask my expert to show me what a positive gram stain looked like so I could understand that. And frankly, it looked like a whole bunch of other stuff to me, so I didn't really know the difference. But I know what it means when you have one. Yeah. Um, before we move on, um, there is this issue of these professional societies um, taking the point of view that egregious testimony needs to be in some way sanctioned. And American College of Emergency Physicians 
has a, a mechanism for that. And I don't know how many, how, how many doctors you think that have gone through that process. Uh, we have now sanctioned, and um, I was one of the people who was involved in the formation of that. I think we've now sanctioned about seven people have gotten letters of um, <clears throat> censure. From, from the board, no one has been removed from the college. Now, the neurosurgeons, it seems, have kind of led the way at this. There's not many neurosurgeons. Right. But most of them, you know, have funky personalities. They're not happy guys. And they've, they have taken a couple of people, and Donald Austin is, is, the, uh, is the case in point here, where they were so mad, they sent out his testimony to every member of the American Association of Neurosurgeons and then let them vote as to whether to throw them out. Yeah, well, and here's my rejoinder to that. Yeah, yeah. You know what? There are many times that I've gotten answers from doctors who are defendants who have told me the craziest things that you could ever possibly imagine. And you know what? If the system was fair and they would look at defendants under those same under that same microscope, I'm totally cool with that because I got news for you. What I, some of the things I've seen, you just would not believe. And, you know, frankly, they should be the ones who are, instead of reporting people, um, I can't believe that people aren't, uh, you know, that their testimony hasn't been reviewed or their charts aren't reviewed. And frankly, that's another bugaboo I've had recently. I mean, I know it, it, this peer review process, and there's very, you know, it's very... Uh, privileged. It's very difficult to get it in New York. The rule is that we can only get um, that peer review materials are privileged unless uh, the only thing we can get is statements made by a party to a peer review committee. And as a result of which in New York, no one ever makes a statement to a peer review committee. So that peer review process is entirely worthless to me or to anyone else, not to me, it's, it's worthless to anybody because we, I have a case now in, in the Utica, New York area where the care, in my opinion, was egregious. It was a horrible situation. A child is quadriplegic and blind. The mother is dead. Okay, it doesn't get any more significant good. than that. And trust me, I won't go into the details, uh, but the care was egregious. And there were three investigations done. One was done by the hospital, one was done by the state of New York, and one was done by uh, J.C., uh, J-C-A-O-H, I, I always get those yeah, initials Joe. backwards. Joint commission, right. To the joint commission. And you know what? All those things, not one person made a statement to any of them. So how, how valid could that investigation have possibly been? Well, there's all, all kinds of... And I don't mean just like, not made a, like, a, you know, like a transcript or anything. They never said anything. They never interviewed. There were never anything. They just looked at the record. Yep. It all dep- it's very state-dependent, though, because in the state of Michigan, where I'm located... It's uh, statements made and things that go on at that are truly peer review are protected from both discovery and presentation at the time of trial. Right. And what they feel is that allows for real discussion to go on at those meetings because if somebody knows it's going to be discoverable, the state of Nevada, for example uh, – that's all discoverable, right. and it's, it can all be presented at the time of trial. So what's happening is there is no peer review. Right. It's become a sham. Right. And that, I agree with you, and it, it defeats the whole purpose of peer, peer review. review. I'd, I'd rather have they, they have legitimate peer review and save some lives than uh, enable me to be able yeah, to get There's it. lots of data that talks about you know, how problematic and subjective peer review is. It's like, and we just did a paper 
at the, at the course where they looked at doctors' view uh, in terms of a case, and if they didn't tell them the outcome and just looked at the process, they were all over this uh, um, place in terms of whether the quality was good. But as soon as they told them the outcome, oh, bad case, bad care. Right. Yeah. Well, I had a case last year. As a matter of fact, I had to come back from my vacation here in Maui to, uh, to go. It ultimately settled. But during the depositions in that case, um, a question I've been asking lately is, this is a case involving a child who lost her entire small bowel, okay? And believe me, there were signs, this was not, uh, this was a pretty bad case. Um, and I asked both the physician assistant and the, uh, and the uh, uh, NICU doctor, I said, well, knowing what you know now, knowing what happened to this child, are you telling me that if the same exact patient walked in today, I mean, they ignored a whole bunch of stuff. I said, are you telling me that you would treat this patient no different today, knowing what the outcome was, was than you did, you know, five or six years ago, whenever it was? And they both said yes. Well, guess what? That was, that, those questions on videotape were my, it never got tried, but in my mediation submission, I mean, I think that angers people, that they didn't learn it, anything from Yeah, this there's case. some arrogance. Well, but there's also understanding we, if we had the same thing come in today not knowing the end. Right. I mean, well, I, all of us, both of us, obviously, as emergency docs, see people die every day. Of course. That doesn't mean we did it wrong. No, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> but knowing what happened to this, what's, what signs and symptoms were ignored along the way, and that in this particular case, they didn't call for a surgical consult, even though everybody in the case said a surgical consult was required, you know, you know, hours. This was not a distended before. abdomen and all that. Yeah, stuff. I mean, this yes. is a child who, I mean, she had a uh, actually she had a uh, a diaphragmatic hernia repair, and then uh, and uh, uh, during the course of that, they created a volvulus, and there was, I mean, there was X-rays that were ordered and and showed, you know, all kinds of problems. Well, every everything, and the surgeon said nobody ever called me. Okay, and they all admitted that the surgeon needed to be called. So now I'm asking, under that, in that context, I'm saying, and he should have been called. He said I should have been called like hours before, based on this, or days before. And he said, well, I said, well, knowing what you know now, would you still do the same thing today? And they felt compelled because of the litigation mm -hmm. process. I mean, there's no right answer. There's no good answer to that. Exactly. There's, and that's like asking somebody, when did you stop beating your, your wife? wife? But I'm supposed to be, you know, that's my job is to ask questions like that because the bottom line is, there isn't. There isn't an answer you can have to that. But it just gets people angry, frankly, when you have somebody say, you know what, we didn't learn a thing from this. You know, uh, one last point I wanted to make about this process whereby these professional organizations are reviewing doctors. They never re review doctors who testify uh, bef uh, in on the other side of the case. It's always the plaintiff's expert. Not There's true. There's one of those been sent to the American College, uh, and that had, was sent by a family who thought that the doctor from the uh, defense side was egregious as well. Right. That case is going to come up for review. But it's not just the experts. It's when, you know, I take depositions of doctors all the time, doctors and nurses primarily. And, you know, some of the things that I hear, you'd, I mean, you just wouldn't believe them, frankly. And I feel like sending them, they're saying this person shouldn't be practicing medicine if they really believe that. I had a guy tell me one time, he was talking about, uh, um, you know, he was refusing to recognize any literature as, as authoritative or even or even 
a generally reliable source of information because that's what they're trained to do in New York when they're answering questions is don't recognize anything as a, a recognized source of uh, reference material. And if I was training them, I would tell them to do okay. that too, obviously. So I asked them, I said, well, look, if the <coughs> same thing appeared, his defense, his line of defense along that way was it's outdated. I refer to medical literature instead. And I said, well, if the same statement Contain, was contained in the first edition of a textbook, in the second edition of a textbook, in the third edition of a textbook, in the fourth edition of a textbook, would you at least agree that it was timely information between the second and third editions? And he said, well, uh, no, I couldn't agree with that. And he said, I asked him, well, would you agree that there is some information in medicine that is so fundamental that it hasn't changed in more than 100 years? For example, a surgeon should wash his hands before doing surgery. Oh, I'm not a surgeon. I couldn't answer that question. Oh, gee. <laughs> that's what he told me. Well, you can, you can laugh, but that's what he told me. And I said, okay. Uh, it's tough. <laughs> okay, yeah, right, you know right, what? Right. If that's the way you want to go, you just look like an idiot. When Doctor, you, do when... you agree that if it's nighttime now, probably in eight hours it's going to be daytime? Well, okay. yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. You know, we do have a, uh, somebody at the course who is being uh, sued. And she recently, just a couple of days ago, uh, were asked, you know, what are the textbooks that you read? What are the journals that you read? Who is the publisher, the dates? Right. All of this kind of intimidating stuff. Well, I don't think it's so intimidating. For example, I mean, if you recognize there are certain basic texts in a particular field, if, if like Williams on Obstetrics has been, in, it's in over its 20th edition, okay? Now, sure, there's some information that changes day to day, but some information is so fundamental it hasn't changed in 50 years. But you okay. would agree, Counselor, that everything in a book is written in, in general, whereas the patient who presents absolutely. to us oh, absolutely. is in the specific. Absolutely. But I, the way I ask that question um, is, well, doctor, recognizing your right to agree or disagree with any particular portion of this book, would you agree that, for example, Williams on Obstetrics is considered to be a generally reliable source of information among practitioners in your field. That's it, the way to ask that question. It's not to say, is this authoritative? Right. That's a magic word. Everybody's trained that they don't answer that question. Yes. And I agree with that. But that's not the question. And I did a law review article about this, as a matter of fact, about what does the term authoritative really mean? Because I looked, I was frustrated by it because everybody would answer me, well, no, it's not authoritative. Well, I would ask a series, you know, well, did you use this book to train in your residency? Yes. Did you have it in your library? Do you have it in your office? How many times have you actually purchased, uh, how many editions of this book have you actually purchased? And, you know, when you want to go look something up um, that you don't know about, what book do you go look in? Or, you know, is it on the reserve section of the library? Is it, you know, is this what you would teach your residents to tell them to go look something up in? Well, is it a reliable source of information? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, it just makes you look stupid when right. you say something I, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, that's a, actually a pet bugaboo of mine. I never use the word authoritative. I think it's a mistake for lawyers to do it. Um, first of all, because doctors are trained, don't ever recognize anything to be authoritative. But the way I would ask the question, which is a much harder question to answer, is recognizing your right to agree or disagree with any particular portion of this, would you agree that among practitioners in your field, it's considered to be a generally reliable source of information? Hard to say no to that. Yeah. Well, that's the much my job is to ask questions that it's hard to say it. no to. Yeah. What about this idea of uh, video depositions? How do you feel about that? I, you know, because I put down here, I've heard that you know most communication that is verbal is really about body language and those kinds of things. Do you think that uh, you're 
doing yourself a favor if you're on a video deposition? Oh, I think everything that is worth, uh, every deposition that is worth taking is, needs to be videoed. Absolutely, without exception. I've been doing that for years. I've been burned in the earlier years when it was more expensive to do that. Um, I had many times where I said, geez, I wish I had had that in, on, uh, on uh, videotape. And, you know, I can just give you a, a couple of, of examples. Um, I had a case years ago involving a, uh, it was a, an obstetric case. And it was a case in which I had asked the doctor if he, the reason that he decided to do a C-section in this patient was, uh, at least in part, because he was concerned that the child wasn't getting enough oxygen. And he said, uh, and he sat there literally for 33 seconds on video, hemming and hawing, deciding how he was going to answer that question. Which you would never pick up no. in the depth. No, obviously. it would be like, and you count out 33 <laughs> seconds on your watch and see what that looks like, seeing this guy sweat for 33 seconds. Well, it was like you could have made a TV show out of it. It was like the best answer ever. And he finally said yes. And then I said, and so, and then what did you do after you made that decision? Well, as it turned out, he left the hospital for three hours to go do something else and came back. I know, you know, you guys can't believe that people do that, but they actually do. And so he's concerned the baby's not getting enough oxygen, uh, at least in part, and he leaves the hospital for three hours. So that's interesting. That I would, uh, what do you think about that? These, how often do you see video depositions? I think probably half my depths at this point uh, really? are, are videoed. And now the technology is so so good that if somebody's from... Atlanta or Houston or wherever it is, you're sitting in, in the room in front of a screen. We're all talking to each other. All you got to do is push a button, and that's recorded. Uh, it's not a very difficult process anymore. And I think there's another aspect to that as well, and that is, uh, you know, as I said, we don't have depositions in New York of experts, but the defendants, frankly, you know, it's one thing for somebody, a lawyer, to give a report to whoever's making a decision about what to do with the case to say, you know, that person made a good witness or made a lousy witness or whatever. I mean, be it the plaintiff, the defendant, an expert or whatever. It's quite another to send them um, a video of what that witness looked like. And frank, frankly, what I do many times is uh, I put together a little compilation clip when we have mediations or something like that, and I have I put ten, together like a 10-minute highlight reel and say, okay, you really want to defend this person? Go ahead. Be my guest. Make my day. A picture's worth a, more than a thousand words? Well, I've certainly, I was the president of two uh, malpractice companies, and we always took a look and, and sized up. What, what is the team going to look like? Because in the final analysis, if you go to a, a trial, this is a show judged by 12 people. What do your people look like? Do they look believable? I never think that there's any more important depth uh, than the fact deposition of the defendant doctor. He makes it or breaks it. Absolutely. A guy who's well put together, looks professional, looks like he cares, answers the question uh, in a reasonably straightforward way. That guy you can do a lot with. Sure. The angry guy... The guy who is who is uh, so haughty and above everyone else. We once saw a case where the uh, OB uh, doctor wore a uh, shark skin uh, suit with a black turtleneck to uh, the, the depth, and he's wearing a small ch- uh, chain. He has a chain, an OB doc, and on it is a small vaginal speculum. Oh, jeez. 
I, I mean, if you if you had to call central casting and say, send me a slime ball that everybody would like to beat up, that's the case. Well, I will tell you, the same doctor that I had mentioned it had the 33-second delay in answering that question, hemming and hawing all the way. I, uh, at a different trial, I ran into him again, and uh, he, uh, it was a case that, it had, that had been involved when he was a resident, so he was actually testifying basically as a fact witness, but the guy was so nervous, he wound up, he started to pour himself some water from the witness stand, and he wound up spilling, no, he spilled <laughs> the whole thing, he tipped over the cup, and the jury's laughing, I felt sorry for the guy, really, I mean, but, you know, just imagine you're thinking, say, well, geez, you know, if you're on the jury, would you want this guy delivering your wife's you know, or yeah. your child. And it's unfortunate that had really nothing to do with the fact he also wasn't the brightest guy on the planet, but that's another, that's another story. But his appearance was so poor that, you know, it really made him look worse even than the medicine that he practiced was. Um, so the answer to your question is yes, I would video everything. You know, I would think that that would add a lot more pressure to Everybody in the case, not the expert as much, but the poor doctor who's being sued is going to be videoed on top of it. He, he, he doesn't want to be there in the first place. He's scared to death. And now we're going to video you. If you know that's going to happen, and I've been through this a lot of times, you take that doctor, you put him on video in your own office, you bring in somebody, a mean son of a bitch, to actually do the dep and see how they do under that pressure because... They will never be any better than they are at a certain moment. If they've been hammered a few times, they've asked those kinds of questions, the authoritative question, will you agree with this doctor or that? They have to go through that a little bit so that they can relax enough to actually think about the question that's being asked. You know, first thing I ever tell them is actually listen to the question that's being formed and what's the predicate of the question because you're trying to answer something they haven't even asked, and I find that all the time. Well, I think that's an important rule, um, but I think you really there's a danger that they try to outthink the lawyer and they try to think where they're going. So, you know, I think you got to be careful about not reading too much in the country, into the question and answering really the question as opposed to uh, thinking where somebody's headed because, you know... The way people get in trouble, in my opinion, is they really try to sell a bill of goods sometimes that just won't fly. And, you know, they think they got some, you know, magic bullet here, but, you know, I know that record better than they'll ever know it, okay? Because I'm going to spend, you know, dozens if not hundreds of hours looking at that medical record. My, my partner, Sandy Rosenblum, who you mentioned before, said, you give me a big enough medical record and I'll find all kinds of stuff. And, I mean, not necessarily that made any difference, but... You know, there's a ton of stuff in there, and there's really, there's so many cross-references in a medical record that most people don't even think about, and probably doctors and nurses don't even think about, but, you know, between the medical record and the logs that are kept by, for example, the lab or the radiology department or something like that, you know, if somebody's going to lie to me or, or mis be a mistaken about, like, what time something happened, there's a lot of ways for me to figure out when it actually happened. And um, so I think the problem is... There is a problem if they try to outthink too much the questioner. I mean, if it's a skilled questioner, um, 
you know, you really do it. You're right. You do have to listen to the question as a lawyer, too, because years ago when I was doing direct testimony of, uh, of experts in the first malpractice cases I tried, I was so focused on the questions I was asking, I literally would have them typed out because I didn't want to make a mistake. And I wasn't until I got a lot, a lot more comfortable over the years and listening to what the expert was telling me and knowing, being comfortable enough in my own skin and, and, and in knowing the case that I could go where he was leading me, and, and if it happened to be in a different order, I could get back to where I needed to be. And I wasn't so focused on, you know, I was so focused on asking the question. See, we have, we have anxieties about this too. And I was so focused on asking the question that I wasn't really listening to the answer, and I was just wanting to get to the next question. And Our, when there were many times I could have followed up on things yeah. that would have led me down that path, and, you know, I'm a lot better at that. As I get older, I'm sure most of our listeners who are docs do not know that there's a book you can buy as a lawyer that has almost everything, all kinds of uh, uh, torts, and you can look up a certain kind of this or that, and they have the questions written out for you. And I've seen young lawyers come in with me, and they've taken a page out of this book and just gone down that in a very perfunctory way and didn't listen to the answers. It it wasn't useful for them, I promise you. Speaking of the medical record, have you had an opportunity to be involved in any cases where they were were, uh, using an electronic medical record? Actually, I'm involved in one right now. Um, And I've I've heard stories from other people. One of the speakers, when I spoke in Amsterdam last fall, was talking about electronic medical records. And uh, um, by federal regulation, as I'm sure you gentlemen are aware, um, you need to, there needs to be a log and every time somebody accesses that medical record, that's required to be kept and you can get back and get into it. Now, I have a case right now in which I believe that there were late entries made and they were in the process at the time of this particular case to uh, be going between a paper chart and an electronic chart. And um, <coughs> when I went to the <coughs> hospital with my one of my co-counsel, and we went to the hospital a couple of years ago and looked through the chart, and they said, oh, this is the electronic chart, there's handwritten charts, and they were really in the process of transitioning between the two, but we wanted everything, and we sat there and looked at page by page by page by page, every page. And I tell you, you know, if I read a record a hundred times, the hundred and first time I read it, I find something new. But just this week, um, they sent some entries that were handwritten that we had never seen before. Now, frankly, I think it makes the case better for us. But, oh, sure. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it's a real problem. Um, but, you know, people and I, a colleague of mine recently told me he, had, he was involved in a birth injury case in which somebody made uh, 22 late entries after they knew what the outcome was and they went back and altered the record, they, not realizing that you know, <coughs> we can get access to that. Well, I, th- I think that uh, when I train docs, I say if you have a late entry. you got to call it a late entry. Just call it a late And if, if it says, here's my remembrances, here's the date and the time that I'm putting it in, Absolutely. that's called honesty. That's fine. you, you got to remember, what we're really talking about here is an ethical, moral question. If you're lying, if you're pretending that, that's an ethical and moral disaster. Yeah. You can't do that. Well, I've never seen a doctor, by the way, caught uh, altering the record who didn't lose. Right. Oh, absolutely. Never well, seen it. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, sometimes you don't even need any more than that. And I, we have a case, uh, I mean, I had a case years ago in which uh, there was whiteout used in the record. Um, you know, who knows when? I don't know. Didn't look good. Um, you're supposed, you know, 
you know, you're supposed to put in error, write in error, or you're supposed to write in late entry or whatever it is. I have a case this, uh, that's pending now where uh, um, they went back and, uh, and, you know, they claimed at the time. Now, I admit this is an obstetrical emergency, no question about that, and a lot of things are happening at the same time, and, you know, um, you can't be writing down stuff as you're treating, but they had like four or five people in the room, one of whose uh, under their protocol was, re was their responsibility was to be the recorder. Well, the times are way off. And, they, if you, and the way I know that is because at the time on a fetal monitoring strip, I could see, and this was all kept by computer record when these things happen, they claim the alarm went off at such and such a time, but according to the electronic fetal monitoring, which time is synced on their computer, it was seven minutes, there was a seven minute discrepancy. So these things they said happened in one minute really took seven minutes. So, you know, these electronic records, I think, uh, are good, and um, you know we're concerned as lawyers that people are making, um, you know, potentially altering those. But they're required to make sure that these things that we have access to, or everybody has access to, the fact when the record is accessed, somebody is entitled to know about that. Well, the other thing and is, who did it? Yeah. We th we're kind of of the view that most of these late, late entries are going to be self-serving entries. <laughs> obviously, well, <laughs> I rarely see one that's not. Self-serving is not the same as dishonest. That's true. No question. And, and believe me, we've all had a case where, uh, you know, they came back in two hours later and we've said, uh, you know, here's the time. Mrs. Smith returns. She looks different now. Right. And, and I, I think there's, there's some beauty in honesty about that because any juror who believes that we pick it up every time instantly, that's not no, right. You're absolutely right. It's, there's a big difference between a late entry that's made – for dishonest purposes and one that's just a late entry. I mean, things happen and, you know, you didn't have time to write something down. You're dealing, by definition, in your field, you're dealing with emergencies, of course. I've uh, certainly seen a lot of nurses, too, in the old days in emergency medicine where they'd stack up the charts because they're busy. Right. And now they're putting in their final right. notes. Well, I've, yeah, I've heard many times where, like, the nurses are, where's the vital signs? I have a case now where, I, unfortunately, uh, uh, a pediatrician died while getting a cardiac cath. And um, um, they weren't recording the blood gases. And now it turns out, after I took their depositions, they now claim that it was recorded in the machine. And I just recently got them. But I'm saying, well, where are the blood gases? You mean the pulse ox? Yeah. The pulse ox. Yeah. 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 Excuse me. Um, let's go down the list here a little bit. Um, Greg, do you want to have any favorites here? Don't have the list with me. Oh, that, that will make it more difficult. Then, I, then let me say, um, I, I, I wrote down, what do you think are the most common chart screw-ups that physicians need to know about and, and avoid based on your experience? Well, that's, you know, I, I really can't answer that all that well because they really are, uh, you know, they run the gamut. And one of them is, we just talked about a lot, is late entries or not marking things written as errors uh, when they're errors. I mean, people make... You know, it's not a bad thing to write down a wrong chart entry. It's just not. It's just, you know, you have to go back and fix it and say, that was a mistake. It was an error, and I wrote on the wrong... I mean, I see people writing in the wrong people's charts. I, I mean, but that's, that happens because you're busy and things are going on, and, you got, and you're dealing with patient care, not charting them. You know, having, having reviewed, I guess, in my career about 2,000 cases, I've never seen a case where a doctor has written error, wrong chart, ever be an issue. It's not. 
you know, it, 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 if you're going to try and bang the drum on that, no. it's oh, not worth it. You'd be stupid to do you'd that. You'd be stupid to do that. I mean, I have seen nurses, like, write, I've seen this come up several times. I said, well, where, you know, where did you, how do you know these times? And they said, well, we, I was writing the, you know, the, the uh, like the blood pressures or vital signs or something like that on a paper towel. I've seen that several times. And I'm just wondering, why do they have these forms here where, you know, there's a, there's a block form and they're writing numbers down on a paper towel? I understand people get busy and they're, you know, trying to give patient care, but I've seen that several times that they're just writing it and then they transpose it later on and do the best they can with the times. Um, but they don't, they're not saying that and it just looks bad sometimes. How do you establish or how do you think we should establish the term standard of care? Well, that's... Um, you know, I think that's something that is very well, uh, very, very mis- much misunderstood. Um, standard of care does not mean what other people do. It does not mean that. It means what a reasonably prudent other person would do. Under like or similar Ab- circumstances. Correct. And the standard of care really is not, I mean, it's not average care. It's not, it, it's not what the average person would do. It's what a reasonably prudent person would do under the circumstances. And the standard of care really means, and I've actually just been listening to a book on tape by a, by a very noted trial consultant. It's very fascinating to me. But, you know, the general rule, not just for physicians, but for anyone involving in the standard of care is a professional or anyone, a truck driver, anyone, cannot um, needlessly endanger your patient or your client or the public. You can't needlessly endanger someone. And if you're doing something that is unsafe, let me just give you an example, I think, which is a, um, that one of my experts one time in one of my tuberculosis meningitis cases said, you know, um, there's a big difference. You know, everybody knows you're supposed to wash your hands when you use the men's room or use the bathroom, right? But not everybody does that. Matter of fact, probably most people don't. So the fact that most people don't wash their hands when they go to the bathroom doesn't mean that that's appropriate care. It's, that's not the standard of care. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, they did a study at the Society for Infectious Diseases, and they literally followed physicians in the society into the men's room and the ladies' room to see what percentage of them washed their hands. And you'd think of all people on earth that these people would be washing their hands. And something like 60% of the, the people did not. So and I think that's a good example of what the difference between what, other, what everybody does or what standard, quote-unquote, standard practice is and what the standard of care is. You see, this is one of the problems in emergency medicine particularly is that uh, you have a good doc trying to do what he can in Keokuk, Iowa, and the expert is from, uh, was from Harvard. The two of them live in worlds which have nothing to do with each other. Because you're the world's expert on a disease or process, has, say, does not say you know what goes on in Keokuk, Iowa at 2 in the morning. Well, you know, I think that's true to some extent and not true in many others. There are certain things that we talked earlier about, uh, um, about somebody who t- told me that there wasn't anything that was a reliable source of information. But, you know, the bottom line is we do have a national standard. And there are certain minimal things that people need to know, whether they're in Keokuk, Iowa, or at the Harvard, you know, at uh, Mass General. I mean, there are certain minimal things. If somebody comes in complaining of chest pain, et cetera, et cetera, there are certain things that need to be done, and it doesn't matter where you are. 
I would disagree with you about that. Now, yeah, if you're looking for the most obscure disease on the planet, and th that's true. I'll just give you an example. Years ago, I had one of my tuberculous meningitis cases, actually. One of my experts was probably the leading pediatric radiologist in the United States. And I went down to see him. He was in New York City. And I brought the x-rays, and he said, well, this, you know, this is showing me tuberculosis. And I said, well, yeah, but you're so-and-so, and, you know, you're one of the leading authorities on the planet on, you know, pediatric radiology. What, uh, you know, you know, what would a regular radiologist say when they saw this x-ray? And they said, well, all I can say is this is what I see. And, you know, he didn't know when I asked him the question what, what, what I was looking for. I, I sent it to him blind, frankly. I do that a lot. I send things to experts blind. I don't tell them what side I'm working for. I don't tell them anything. I just give them the chart and say, tell me about this case. Um, I, I'd like to be able to do that so they can say when they get up and testify that I didn't know why I was being consulted. Um, so he said, well, let's see. And he brought in a group of about six residents who were there, and uh, they were in various stages of their training. And uh, he threw the x-rays up there, and he said, to, he asked me, it was fascinating to me, by the way. He said, well, give them a little bit of, uh, give them a little of history. And I gave them the history that the radiologist would have under the circumstances. And um, now, recognizing that you know, these residents also recognize they're not looking at an x-ray that's going to be normal. I understand that. But yeah. within that, there's a whole bunch of things they could have said. And sure enough, you know, one of them says, first one who speaks up says, well, I would say, geez, that's tuberculosis until proven otherwise. So, you know, I can't answer your question in terms of, of uh, you know, the world's leading authority on a particular field. Uh, but at the same time, um, there are certain minimal standards I think everyone would agree that you have to know no matter where you are on the planet, even if you're in the third world, uh, that you would need to be able to know. Now, your ability to be able to treat it may be different, but recognizing what the problem is, the diagnostic process I don't think changes no matter where you are on the face of the earth. I don't know when you learned that in medical school. I hope it's day one. But if I, you had to ask me one common theme of what kind of cases I see, it's the failure to use the diagnostic process. It's guessing. And it gets into issues of like, you know, I, 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 it, it upsets me when I think, see people don't use the term defensive medicine, for example, that we're doing tests that we don't really need to do because we don't want to be, be sued. Well, I don't, frankly, I mean, we may all disagree about this, but I don't believe that there is a such thing as defensive medicine because defensive medicine is another way of saying, I'm, go I'm following the standard of care. Are you so arrogant or is it somebody so arrogant that they say, I know what this person has and I'm willing to bet his life on the fact that I'm not going to do, you know, uh, an EEG or something like that. Um, you know, that's, you know, I think it's a misnomer and I think it's, it's really the... Uh, if I could get up on a soapbox to anybody and talk to doctors, it's the failure to use the diagnostic process and use the differential diagnosis. They get sloppy. Comment. Well, uh, you know, it, 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 it is tough because the uh, diagnostic process is not necessarily um, a test, uh, such a, a straight path for us all to follow. And, um, you know, that leads into this thing, does, you know, does every kid who bumps his head get a CAT scan? And does, there is this issue about um, reasonable testing versus, you know, doing everything possible. And um, so I think there is some, we are concerned about overutilization of tests and particularly, you know, things like CAT scans on kids, which are 
not without their consequences. No, I understand that, and I'm, I didn't mean to suggest that there isn't a role for clinical judgment to be used under under. Yeah, I guess all that's what I'm talking about. That's true. There's no question about that, and I wouldn't dispute that. But where you have a potentially life-threatening situation based on the clinical findings, then that's a different situation than every child who bumps their head. If you have a child who bumps their head and is lethargic and can't, you know, and, and can't be aroused and things like that, that's a whole different situation. I'm not a physician, but I can tell you that I would be a lot more concerned. One thing, I'll tell you, you know, particularly for emergency medicine, because I've had a number of these cases over the years, usually all my meningitis cases start with a failure in the emergency room. Um, but uh, the what tends to happen is that People are ignoring these signs, and they're not. They're giving junk mm -hmm. diagnoses. They're mm -hmm. saying oh, uh, viral syndrome without right. a basis for that, and it, and you know, and they haven't got. They, there's no basis for that conclusion. It's they been, certainly don't have the viral titer back of in the course. emergency department. I mean, you right. know, they're saying, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've, if I had a if I had a nickel for every time in one of these cases that I've heard somebody say, well, it must be a viral syndrome because I can't think of anything else this could possibly be when they're right. sitting there with fulminant bacterial meningitis and they're describing the child as lethargic, et cetera. It's Etc. I mean, you know, going down chapter and verse. You know. You've got to see those cases going away, though, Mike, because having done this for a long time, the vaccinations which we have now right. have wiped out bacterial meningitis. It's rare. Um, well, you know, I hope so. I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't had a meningitis. I haven't had a, a child meningitis case. You're right. Now that I can think of it in you know, through four or five years anyway. Yeah, the exactly. average age for uh, meningitis now is in the 20s. This is these college kids who get meningococcal meningitis, meningitis and now the college well, is mandating I do, I do have a 33-year-old, right, a 30-year-old right now that I'm dealing with. Yeah, but with. it's not kids anymore. It, it, it's moved well, up I'm in glad. terms of you the know age. What? I'm happy. And, you know, it's another field in the, in the anesthesiology field. Yeah. The, they have really uh, cleaned up their act a lot. They used to be one of the highest uh, malpractice mm -hmm. uh, premium rates and by using the use of checklists and and really using standardizing procedure contrary to what your comment was about being in Keokuk, Iowa yeah. as opposed to you know as opposed to Boston the anesthesiology field has really really improved patient safety a great deal and as a result their malpractice premiums have gone down claims have gone down among and it was the ideal one to do that because it is so um, mechanically based you realize that their biggest problem was in goes the good air, out goes the bad air. Right. It's it's not like there's 5,000 disease entities, right. and they are a technological group that are looking at a series of monitors and buttons just like you're in a 747 cockpit. Right. I mean, their error rate went down too. Right. Why? <laughs> because they forced them through... Well, Computer we, I think we talked about this last summer, but the use of checklists and, you know, the checklist right. manifesto, those kind of things are really, you know, and, well, I'll give you an example, though, recently, and I asked an expert about this in a case, and one of the things that I um, have been involved in a lot is the role of nurses and whether the role and the obligation and duty of a nurse, and I believe any nurse professional would tell you, and I don't think, I've never had a nurse disagree with this, ever, that a nurse has an independent obligation to the patient. Independent duty. Oh, yeah, a absolutely. nurse has an independent duty to act as a patient advocate. If a nurse sees something wrong uh, or thinks that there may be something wrong that may endanger the patient, she has an obligation or he has an obligation to speak up and, and talk to the doctor about it. And if that doesn't work, go up the chain of command. Just recently, within the last couple of weeks, I talked to a physician about a case, and I said, uh, 
I mean, there was no question about the other aspect of the case. And I said, well, geez, isn't this so obvious that the janitor should have known what was going on for much less a nurse and said that this is wrong. You need to you you can't do this. This is wrong. I know, for example, if if I was about to make a mistake, I would hope my secretary would point it out to me. And, you know, but uh, the thing I see and he said, no, I'm in charge and I wouldn't expect the nurse to question that to me. That kind of arrogance is really creates a lot of problems because it's up to a hospital, it seems to me, and it's up to a physician to create an atmosphere where a nurse feels comfortable in saving the doctor from making a serious mistake. Yeah, I've certainly had nurses say to me, I've never given that drug at that dose in this way. Dr. Henry, if you'd like to give it, Please feel well, comfortable. You know, frankly, I don't even think that's good enough because yeah. if they're really concerned that it's a danger, they can't say, okay, I'm going to sit by and watch you do it without right. saying something about it. And I think that to the extent, even in this day and age, that a physician just in the last couple of weeks would tell me that they are um, – um, I hope he doesn't hear this. That's certainly, certainly old school <laughs> thought. Right. I mean, yeah. that the fact that, you know, that, that that degree of arrogance that you can't make a mistake – really leads to a lot of problems. Nurses can save your rear ends a lot of times, but only yeah. if they are encouraged to do so. I don't mean they right. need to question everything that you do, but at the same time, if patient safety is involved, they can really be a savior for the patient and the physician. I think we would agree with that. Well, there's a big move at hospitals to um, make uh, the reporting of errors without finger-pointing kind of thing. And um, in fact... Some of the hospitals, they kind of know the percentage of errors that they re, uh, report should be reporting in pharmacology, as an example. And they say, you're only reporting this many, and statistically, you're way below the uh, where you should be. And it would really, it's not that you're so good. It's because you're not reporting right. See, errors. it's hard to know, though, what that, what the correct answer is you have to look again because they may be quite good they may have actually cleaned up their act well i mean you all you know better than i that if you're not doing uh, getting 85 percent uh normal spinal taps you're not doing enough spinal taps or if you're not getting 80 percent well that, yeah normal the, appendixes the you're general. not you're you're in general right, right. yeah uh all right uh we've we've taken a lot of your time mike but i want i want you to end this up with what changes would make the current adversarial system better for patients and physicians? Well, okay. Well, you know, I'm not exactly sure why that question is continually asked. Because people are talking about, quote-unquote, tort reform, which to me is just a euphemism for protecting, instead of protecting people's rights, it's protecting it's the goal ought to be to eliminate wrongs and not eliminate rights. Um, and I'm not sure where the nature, where the idea that there is a quote-unquote crisis uh, in malpractice arises, um, because most of the reforms, and I use that term in quotations, that people are suggesting do not affect meritorious cases. They only relate to cases that are. Um, the, uh, excuse me, I said that backwards. The they only, um, for example, limiting recoveries, caps on damages. Well, by definition, that's a meritorious case because somebody's already proven it beyond where the cap would apply. Limiting attorney's fees, um, stopping people from being able to bring claims. Um, you know, those are all only applicable to cases that are, have merit. So 
I don't know what the answer is to how to eliminate uh, lousy cases. I'd be the first to admit there are a lot of lawyers taking cases that are unmeritorious. There's no question about that. But I'm more concerned that the people who do have meritorious cases are not being appropriately compensated. And I don't think it's helping the doctors either. It's not helping the medical profession. It's certainly not affecting health care costs. You guys are being squeezed between malpractice premiums on one hand and, uh, and uh, managed care and uh, health insurance on the other hand. And I understand why, why people are frustrated and upset about it, but I don't think the answer is to take away people's rights who are really injured by people's uh, malpractice, to, which occurs. And frankly, I have a friend who's a, been a radiologist, he's been a friend of mine for 35 years, who absolutely believe there's never been a case of malpractice in the history of the world. So it's a subject we just can't talk about. <laughs> but I don't believe that there's an answer. The answer is to take away people who have meritorious, meritorious cases rights. Um, I just don't think that solves anything. I'm not, you know, everything I see in these in these um, so-called reforms is always about taking about taking is immunizing somebody from from malpractice, and it's never about saying, you know, what are we doing to make sure that this person is adequately compensated? I have a case now, a birth injury case, where the cost of this child's care is $400,000 a year. He needs registered nursing care 24 hours a day. No question about it. It's by law, he requires it. So what are we going to do? Say, we're not going to give him the care. We're going to kill him. We're going to limit his rights, like in Nebraska, I think it is. Um, you know, they have a hard cap. The taxpayers are ultimately going to wind up paying for that. Yeah, there are some people who believe, though, in those very unusual cases, such as that one. It just ought to be the, the mandate of the state. And, and the care, you say it's $400,000 in cost. Let's say that kid was in Nebraska. Then the taxpayers of the state of Nebraska pick up 400000 bucks on that kind of case. You know, no matter how you do it, there will be one in 100 births that has some problem with the best of care. No question about and that. And so just handle it with a bad baby act that well, says that's taken care of. Actually, I, I really hate that term, bad baby. I know you didn't mean it in that way, but the baby did, isn't bad. The baby didn't do anything wrong. So I, I dislike that term a lot. Unfortunate okay. child Okay. Act. The yes. problem with some of those schemes, and we have one now in New York that just took effect last April, and I'm actually the chairman of the committee to have it struck down as unconstitutional. But... The problem with those things, and they have a th something like that in, I think, in uh, uh, Virginia and in Florida, I believe, um, maybe a couple of other states, is it doesn't really solve the problem. It sounds good on paper, but if you take the example of a quote-unquote no-fault system and you're compensating people who have bad outcomes, that's fine. The problem is that then the next battle becomes was... This caught, was this outcome caused by the birthing process at all? Forgetting about whether or not it was malpractice or not. So like in no-fault automobile insurance in New York, right? Now the issue becomes, well, do you have a threshold injury or don't you have a threshold injury? So people are fighting about that. The costs are the same. Nothing's changing. You still need a lawyer. You still need to go through all this whole process. It just changes the question about whether there was malpractice to another question about whether there was causation. And it's still... It, it, it deters people from being able to get access to appropriate uh, care. It deters people from being, getting access to appropriate legal representation. It, these, those systems really have not worked. Well, if the care is covered by the taxpayers, uh, a British model, a Singapore model, so that, that no matter what that care costs, it's handled, 
then it let me address, really has let taken me address that on, on two levels. Right. One, I, I think I told you, I was invited to lecture on Australia last year about life expectancy of catastrophically injured children. And I said, well, don't you have like state care there? So why do you care about getting a recovery for this child? Okay? And they said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. The state care is, is horrible. You, we need private care to be able to take care of these children properly. Secondly, that's what they've gone to now in New York in birth injury cases or trying to. But the reimbursement rates are at Medicaid rates for everything except physician services. So I'll ask you, you go try to find a nurse to work the night shift uh, you know, for 24-hour care at Medicaid rates. The problem is that you rat wind up rationing care to these children, and as a result, they don't get it, and they suffer, and they die prematurely. If that's what we want, we can have it. But I don't think that's what people want. Rick, it's time for Wine of the Month. Uh, we're moving ahead now. We're back into the Napa Valley. And uh, just to let you know that some of the old names are still good names. Uh, Robert Mondave, which has been making wine for a very long time in your neighborhood in California, um, is back up again. They were down for a while, people bitching, pissing, and moaning. Let me just say the whites. Uh, Robert Mondavi has always been good, uh, particularly in, in Cabernets, that sort of thing. Not a problem. But the whites had gone downhill for a while. Um, they're back up. I would recommend uh, the two, 207, 207 to uh, Cabernet, or the Cabernets are good, but the Chardonnays have become terrific. And they're now picked out as a specialty of the house. Uh, lots of good people writing about this, and so I would send people back to California wines. The problem is, and I've been a collector of, of French wine for a long time, the cost has just gotten out of, out of control. The, the euro and the dollar, that sort of thing, it's not what it was 15 years ago. So I'm going back more into California wines. Sorry about that, those of you who are... You know, Jerry Hoffman and the crowd. No apologies here, All right. Chief. That's what we're going to do this month. Uh, Mike, do you have any um, kind of final thoughts? Uh, we're talking to a bunch of ER docs now. Um, any words of wisdom here? Well, one thing that I wanted to kind of go back to is when we talked about malpractice reforms, I think that people are tending to look in the wrong places. We know that doctors are making a good living. They're not wealthy, but they're making a good living. We know that, you know, uh, that health insurance people are doing okay. And, uh, you know, if you look at what their executive salaries are, you know, that's not a bad racket if you're in a big financial institution. But what people really aren't looking at are malpractice insurance carriers. And that I believe that they are milking this system. They are you know, getting doctors up in arms about things, they're charging premiums, and y you look at what their loss payout ratio mm -hmm. is, and you look at what health, managed health care people, what their loss payout ratio is, you know, a lot of this would disappear if we had something like single payer or something like that. You guys are being squeezed between health, uh, health providers, health, health car insurance carriers, and malpractice premiums. Well, okay. then the obvious squeezing of that, and, and believe me, I'm basically an economist. I, I don't disagree with you. But Americans are going to have to get used to, yes, some health care is going to be rationed. Every other nation in the world does it. The Singaporeans have, have greater male longevity, female longevity, and less infant mortality than we do for one-third the money. 
they handle the whole thing as a glob, i.e. paying physicians. There are no attorneys involved. Do they have malpractice? Yes, they do. But it's handled through a sort of administrative doctor's panel. And whether the patients do better or worse than here, they feel comfortable with it as a unit. Um, I think it's a big question. I think, I, I'm one of those believers, when you look at the money, malpractice is actually not a huge part of the money. Huh. Approximately a half a percent of health care costs. Well, it, maybe it's one. Okay. But what it, what it really Call me a liar for half a yeah, percent. But, it's, but what it really is, is a milieu or a sense which invades doctors early on, which probably isn't good for the patient or the doctor. I mean, why would you like to start every professional relationship uh, at odds with each other? And unfortunately, when I spent time in 14 countries lecturing, doing things, um, the U.S. is the only one that talks about this, uh, this, this friction at any level. The, the Brits really don't, the, the Singaporeans don't, the Australians. I've been visiting Professor Australia half a dozen times. Malpractice is not as big an issue in Australia. It's just not the same. Yeah, and and I'm not exactly sure why that is, because I did, as I said, I was in Australia, and I'm not sure why that's the case. It's not, I think that it's overblown here because people have been whipped up in a political frenzy more than in in actuality. I I believe that that's really the case. And the other thing that I wanted to come back to is you... you think you would ask me earlier, maybe we didn't get, it wasn't on tape, I don't really remember, about what makes a good expert. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a good place to, to end. Um, and, I mean, my criteria would be, first of all, somebody who has excellent credentials, who knows the field, and who is respected, whose opinion will be respected. Um, and you, we had talked earlier about, uh, about whether you should bring your expert to the... Uh, you know, to intimidate the uh, other side. Well, I'd like to do the reverse, frankly. When they see who my expert is, I think they s- start getting concerned about it. Secondly, and more importantly maybe, is somebody who's a good teacher, somebody who can teach me the medicine and the science, and so I know it and understand it, because, I, again, I couldn't focus my microscope in high school. Um, and somebody, teach the jury. Yes, and, but most important, if, you know, if they can teach me, I can teach the jury. Through their questions, but we'll take the third is somebody who'll take the time with me to go through the record, to go through it meticulously. I'm not looking for a bargain when I hire somebody. I'm looking for somebody who's going to take the time to both teach me, and I don't want any surprises. I want them to know the record better than anyone else on the planet. Um, Somebody who's a good communicator, and uh, in my experience, frankly, the bigger they are in their field the nicer they are, with a couple of exceptions. I mean, you don't get to the top of your field, you know, by being a jerk. In general, there's a couple of exceptions to that. (laughs) We've we've just eliminated the entire practice of neurosurgery, but go ahead. You know, but the top people in their field, you know, and I've Mm -hmm. had experts tell me over the years saying, you know what, I'm doing this because if I don't do it, you're going to get somebody who isn't as qualified as me to answer this question, and the system suffers when they do that. See, I think you have to understand, I have a kind of a unique practice, and I weed out 95 to 98% of the things that walk through my door. I became a lot better lawyer with better cases, frankly. And I guess the last thing is somebody who's going to tell me the truth. 
And I'd like to, I'd want to find out early on, right before I start spending a lot of money and time on a case, whether this is really a case or it isn't. Are you stretching or not stretching? Are you, you know, I mean, are you going to go to bat for me when the time is right because the case is, because you believe in it, not because I'm paying you or not because, you know, you can get away with it, but is this really a case? Because if it's going to be a case, I'm going in, I'm all in. Michael, you you have a practice which is so far out of what is norm in the business, really. Probably true. Uh, That is true. And that's exactly where you want it. Because my experience has been, uh, and I've done a small amount of plaintiff's work, but if I write a letter, they cash that for money. I don't think real malpractice is very often tried in this country. I think real malpractice is settled. Right. I think it's rare. I, I bet you don't take two cases a year to trial, do you? No, not even close. My my, <laughs> late, my, no, my, my partner, Sandy Rosenblum, who you mentioned, uh, one of the most profound things he's ever said, and a lot of what he says is kind of nutty, and even if he's going to listen to this, he knows I'll, I, I say that about him. But he says, you know, as lawyers, we settle the cases we should try, and we try the cases we should settle, because... <laughs> The cases that are really good cases, the other side, eventually, maybe not, maybe not soon enough, but they eventually recognize how much trouble they're in, and they want to settle them. And that's why I've never been intimidated by the statistic that you know, 80 to 90% of these cases are won by defendants, because frankly, they should be winning 90% of them, because they get the right to settle the ones that they don't want to try. They're only trying the cases that they think they have a shot of winning. Mm-hmm. So that, that statistic has never scared me, nor is like being in a bad venue. I don't believe there's a such thing as a bad venue. Sure, would I rather be trying a case one place or opposed to another? That's true. But you know what? If you've got the right case, if it's a good case, if it's something that it was a wrong that should be righted, it's going to happen, and you're going to get a good result and a just result no matter where you are. Michael, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. And uh, Greg, any final words here? Hey, the system goes on, and every one of our listeners has to get up and practice tomorrow. Have some belief in yourself. You know, I've I've never been afraid of the legal system. I'm going to do what's right and, and get by and do the best I can. You know what? And I agree. You know, that's 100% the right way to look at this thing. You don't need to be scared of lawyers because if you're doing the right thing and practicing good medicine, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Well, if there's a bad outcome, I think fellow citizens understand the death rate is constant, one per person. We're going, and particularly in the emergency department, we're going to be there when bad stuff happens. And I think most people can understand the difference between those docs who cared about the outcome. See, I, I rarely see a case where there's a, an element of science knowledge which caused the case. It's usually kind of blocking and tackling and doing those things that your mama taught you to do. If you look like you cared, you know you probably did. I don't disagree with that. Well, this is it. We're going to sign off. Thanks very much for listening. That's the March issue of Risk Management Monthly. Bye, Greg. Bye, Rick. And And bye, Michael. Thanks very much. You're welcome. My pleasure.